from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are going to talk about democracy in Russia. And our guest is Michael Kimmage, who is a professor at Catholic University of America and a non-resident fellow at the German Marshall Fund and an expert on all things Russia, as you'll hear in the interview. Just a couple of quick housekeeping notes. We recorded the interview on Monday, February 1st, and we are recording this part of the show on Wednesday, February 3rd. In the time between those two recordings, Recordings. Alexei Navalny, who we'll be talking about a lot, had his prison sentence extended in Russia. So there's just a lot of things kind of up in the air right now. Who knows what may transpire between now and when this episode comes out. But regardless of all that, Chris, I think that there's a lot of similarities here to the conversation that you and Candace had about Hong Kong back in the fall. Right. I think the two things that strike me as kind of very relevant points are the generational split that we saw in Hong Kong between the folks who were around before the Passover to Chinese communist rule and then the two-state system. I mean, for a lot of people in Russia, they've never seen anything but Putin as the leader. And so they don't have any Soviet experience to compare it to. So I think that generational differences crop up all over the place. And one of the things that we talked about, Chris, is how we see similar generational splits in the U.S. And I was thinking about this paper that I'd read about perspective taking on racism. And this paper was saying that people who are looking backward, right? You know, like, well, at least we're not in Jim Crow. We've had a lot of progress. Whereas younger people tend to look forward as in, well, where should we be or where could we be? And so that perspective really influences how people perceive what the problems are and what the solution should be. We saw that in Hong Kong, where there were older people who had lived in an entirely different regime. And so where they were looked great for them and they could care less about whether they got a vote in a particular legislative body, whereas young people were really hoping to get more say. The other interesting point here is how democratic protests often, if not always, combine a desire for greater freedom, but then also a desire for better economic circumstances. And while you're right, Putin had very high approval ratings, at least compared to U.S. presidents in the 60s. And after the annexation, quote unquote, of Crimea, it was very high. You see some of that starting to slip. And part of that is obviously COVID and just the effects on everybody's economy. And part of it is sanctions imposed by the U.S. because of they're meddling in our election in 2016. And part of it is because their economy is so oriented around oil and other commodities. And mm-hmm. when the worldwide economy is collapsing, so does the market for oil. Mm-hmm. And when all this is happening at once, the standard of living for your average Russian is going down and therefore the approval rating for Putin is going down as well. 
I am curious to know whether this business of democratic protests looks similar in Russia insofar as is that what they're looking for? Or are they looking for rule of law and property rights and just having a better sense of stability that their things are going to be protected? So I think that Americans love democracy, and Michael makes that really clear in his interview. I guess the question is whether their vision of democracy is what we think of as democracy, or is there a particular kind of Russian flavor that they're pursuing that is beyond our imagination? Yeah, it's not the same. I mean, and I think that's almost certainly true. I mean, with Hong Kong, you have a history of the British judicial system. Whatever you think of the popular sovereignty in Hong Kong, they had an independent judiciary and a well-established rule of law. And so people thought that the infiltration of the Chinese Communist Party into Hong Kong judiciary was a major step backward. But in Russia, there is no history of democracy. There's no history of independence. You know, you can go all the way back to Tolstoy and find plenty examples of governmental corruption. And so I think people's expectations in Russia, or even their ability to envision a democratic way of life is just different and probably diminished from what we would think or what we would envision. But I also think it's fair to say that what's gone on with Navalny is just beyond the pale. I mean, the idea that, you know, you would try to murder this guy, deny it, and then the guy comes back and you arrest him for probation violations. Understanding the context and some of the dynamics at play within Russia is pretty much exactly why we wanted to have Michael Kimmage on. I think you'll hear that he does a really great job of presenting some of those nuances in a way that's easy to understand. And hopefully you can come away with your own understanding of what's happening there and some of these dynamics at play as you start to think about democracy and Russia. So let's go now to the interview with Michael Kimmage. Michael Kimmage, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. We should also say a special hello to listeners of the Out of Order podcast who are hearing this interview on their feed as well. I'm glad to be putting this out on both podcasts. So, Michael, there is a lot to talk about in the news right now regarding democracy in Russia. But before we get to current events, I'm wondering if you could just orient us a little bit. Even saying the phrase Russian democracy might sound like an oxymoron to some listeners, given all that we've heard about Russia's efforts to undermine and disrupt Western democracy. So if we think of democracy on a spectrum where you have maybe Canada on one side and China on the other, where does Russia fall on that spectrum? How democratic is it? I think that there are really two dimensions to the answer to that question. I think in a formal sense, Russia certainly falls much closer to China than it does to Canada or the United States. And I think that you can almost give a 
kind of technical set of reasons for that uh, separation of powers is non-existent in Russia. There are serious curbs on a free media. Most business is in one form or fashion a sort of state-owned enterprise. You have a government that runs much media, especially television, in Russia and does so in a self-serving and propagandistic way. So you have both autocratic rule in the form of the Russian government, and you have a highly personalist form of rule in the form of Vladimir Putin. And there are really, at the moment, very, very few checks on his power, including the longevity of Putin in office. He really can serve for life as things are currently configured. So that's one answer to the question. Another answer is that Russians are probably going to measure themselves against other countries now and then. But more to the point in Russia is is the measurement of where things are against the Russian past or against the Soviet past. And there you get something that's maybe a bit paradoxical or, or paradoxical from our point of view, which is that Russia has probably the highest degree of political freedom now than at any other point other than the very freewheeling 1990s when the Soviet Union collapsed and really everything was possible. So relative to the Soviet Union, Russians can travel now, which was much more difficult in Soviet times. They can express themselves if you don't do certain things, if you don't criticize Putin too directly, you can express yourself. You don't really have to worry too much about what you say or do. And then the most profound difference, especially for educated online Russians, is that they can go on the internet if they have English and uh, read the New York Times, or they can go on the internet and read sort of critical journalism about the government in Russia. That would have been, of course, unthinkable in many ways in Soviet times. So Russians are, in effect, freer than they've ever been, but that's far from saying that it's a free society. Sure. And we have, as part of all this now, kind of this figure of Alexei Navalny seems to have brought a lot of these things to a head with his actions and kind of the conflict that he's had with Putin and with the Kremlin. Can you tell us a little bit about who he is and how he fits into this larger picture? Well, Alexei Navalny is a young man, especially relative to Putin, who's becoming a sort of aging political figure. I think Putin is about 68 years old, and Navalny is 44. So one of the very important points about Navalny, and you see echoes of this dynamic in neighboring states to Russia, of Ukraine and Belarus, that uh, Navalny is something of a post-Soviet man. Not 100%, I think he must have been about 15 or 16 when the Soviet Union collapsed, but He represents a new style of politics and a new kind of politician. You might compare him in this respect to Ukraine's current leader, Vladimir Zelensky, who's also young and has the sort of affect of a younger generation. So that's one important point to make about Navalny. And in the protest of this past weekend and the weekend before, there are a lot of young people going out in the streets to protest. So there's a generational point to be made. Navalny was not, I think, a household name outside of Russia until very recently, He was known as an anti-corruption activist. He has a real talent for social media. So a lot of what he does is videos that's come to the fore in the last couple of weeks, but he's been doing that for years. Uh, And his videos have the manner of investigative journalism. So he sort of brings forward details, especially about the corruption of Russia's ruling classes. So that's what Navalny has been doing. But all of this has really come to a head in the last couple of months. There was a poisoning of Navalny over the summer with a nerve agent, which strongly suggests that he was poisoned at the behest of the Russian government, which is to say of Putin. And then Navalny was recuperating in Germany and then has very recently returned to Russia where he's been arrested. And then shortly after his arrest, he released this explosive video exposing the corruption and also the vulgarity of Putin and his cronies. 
as you mentioned, he's certainly shown to be skillful at marshalling support and bringing people out into the streets to support him and speak out against Putin and his regime. Do you have any sense of whether there's the makings here of a more organized political movement or or whether it perhaps has the potential to become something more organized moving forward? I think it certainly does. I think at the moment, I think the verb become is absolutely crucial here. At the moment, what this is, I think, is not a political movement. What you've seen in the last couple of weeks in Russia, a political movement demands something of a structure. It demands a kind of direction. It demands leadership. And, you know, of course, at the moment, Navalny is in jail. So that's not an easy position to be if you're providing leadership. But you could maybe analogize back to Mandela and sort of think about what happened in South Africa. And that took really decades to develop and was in many ways intensified by how the government there imprisoned Nelson Mandela. So it's certainly many things are thinkable in the future, but what you have now is not a viable structured political alternative to the Putin regime, but uh, you also don't have nothing at the moment. And what you see with the protest movement is, first of all, that it's nationwide. It's not just in the two capital cities. So if you go back to similar protest movements, let's say 2011, there was a big wave of protest when Putin was returning to the presidency. That was really a Moscow-St. Petersburg affair. This is broader than that. So that's one very significant point. So you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording about the phrase pro-democracy protester. You were saying that there's sort of several ways to think about that phrase pro-democracy protester and perhaps a very specific Russian context that's worth considering as we're thinking about this broader movement. Yes, there is a long tradition in Russian culture, literature, poetry of longing for political freedom. There is a long tradition of dissent in Russia, Soviet Union, Russia, Imperial Russia. And there is a long heritage of democratic thinking going back to the 18th century in Russia. On the other hand, I don't think democracy is the word that stirs most Russian hearts in the way that it does a lot of American hearts and uh, European hearts and, and, and hearts elsewhere in the world. And, you know, if you look at polling data about Russia, take it for what it's worth, but you look at polling data, there's often an affection among Russians for strong rulers. And even the popularity of somebody like Joseph Stalin that's been borne out by a lot of polls in the last five, 10 years which is startling to Westerners, is sort of an aspect of that. So that's one thing that's in the mix. But the other, I think, that's more to the point, that's more salient, and this speaks to Navalny's own career, is that what Navalny really shows in the Russian context is the corruption and vulgarity of the Russian government. Russians live on small salaries, most of them. COVID crisis has been devastating for anybody with a small business, and you haven't seen the kind of financial support for businesses in Russia that countries like Germany and the United States have given in the midst of the COVID crisis. So people are really suffering. And then I think when that's the case and you see the corruption, the graft, the self-indulgence of the ruling class, that's really horrifying and it's disgusting. And that, I think, is why, let's say, 80, 90 percent of the people are going out on the streets. I think it's a leap from that to say that Russians are going out on the streets at the moment because they want to construct a Russian democracy. That's certainly true for some of them. And maybe in a best case scenario, that would be the end result of these protests. But I don't think that that's the logic of a lot of the people on the streets. As you were speaking there, I was thinking a little bit about some of Donald Trump's rhetoric throughout his campaign, throughout his presidency. I think we saw some similar grievances among his supporters feeling like they were not doing as well economically Mm -hmm. and these sorts of things. And one of the things that Trump 
and those who support him did was they were kind of able to marshal that into a hatred or kind of point the finger at someone else besides him. And I, I wonder if there's mm. any parallel efforts by Putin and his regime to do that in Russia, or if this is a tactic they may turn to as these protests and this kind of unrest continues. Yes, it's a great question. And I think there are actually a lot of parallels. We in this country tended to focus when Trump was president on allegations of Putin's direct support to Trump. And that's a big story here. And I think we're not at the end of it. And <laughs> let's let the evidence take us where it takes us. And it may, in the end, show something very disturbing. Obviously, Putin did meddle in the 2016 election. But I think in some ways, that's the less interesting aspect of the Trump-Putin relationship. I think that Trump really did admire Putin in some general way. In other words, I don't think he was being paid to admire Putin. I think that he had a genuine admiration of him. And it's precisely along the lines that you're sketching. So Putin is a populist. He is disliked by the urban elites of Russia and has been from the beginning. He uses a kind of crude vernacular often in his speeches, expletives and sort of crude phrases. And that generated in the past a certain kind of popularity for Putin. And most importantly, the politics of binary <laughs> stigmatization, to put a fancy phrase behind it, is very much what Putin has done. Partially, it's a sort of us-them rhetoric, real Russians versus those who are pro-Western. And you can see how that could map onto American politics. I want to shift things here slightly and, and talk about how Navalny and, and how the protests of the past few weeks are kind of being perceived outside of Russia. You had a piece in The New Republic a week or so ago, which we'll link to in our show notes, um, where you talk about perhaps some of the miscalculations of the early Obama years in terms of how it thought about democracy in Russia and kind of advancing a pro-democracy agenda there and maybe offering some words of advice for the Biden team about how they should be thinking about this. So can you walk us through, I guess, first sure. kind of what the Obama philosophy was and maybe where that might have fallen short and then what Biden might do differently now? Yes. Well, the Obama philosophy on this had two phases. One was when Obama first came to power in 2008, and you had a new president in Russia, Dmitry Medvedev. And now we know in retrospect, maybe Putin was <laughs> was the puppeteer all along, and he was predestined to return. You know, we can make those arguments now. People didn't know that then. And so I think the Obama administration made a really good faith effort to work with Medvedev. And Medvedev sent a lot of positive signals that he went to Silicon Valley, and he wanted to modernize the economy, and he wanted to you know, cooperate with Americans on business. And I think the American hope was that Medvedev would be a first step and maybe somebody else would come or Medvedev would secure power and take Russia in the direction of Europe and modernization and greater political pluralism, rights, etc. Uh, how optimistic people were at the time, I don't quite know. But that was at least the hope. But then Putin comes back and you get this huge clash between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine, where it's not quite a war, but uh, sort of inches in that direction. The first responsibility of Biden, I would say, is to manage those tensions and conflicts. And what you do with that is you support your allies, which Biden has already, I think, done brilliantly. You stand up for democratic principle for sure, but you also don't jump into Russian politics all that directly. The idea that we could be a kind of neutral actor there, a third party, a kind of honest broker between the Russian people and the government, it's beyond wishful thinking. It's craziness and will lead to very, very dangerous clashes between us and Putin if that's the road we want to travel down. I would also say something a little bit different that, and I, you know, I think the Biden administration has made this point already. It's not in any way original with me, but uh, this is a moment for a certain degree of humility 
both in American politics and American foreign policy. I mean, we just on January 6th had a group of American citizens storm the U.S. Capitol. We had a president who tried to steal an election. We have quite considerable uh, political polarization here at home. We have inequality. We have the COVID crisis. That doesn't mean that we bow down in our foreign policy, but I don't think it's the time to sort of bang the drum. And that matters to Russia in the sense that I don't think Russians are looking to the United States at the moment to save them. I'm not sure a 25-year-old Russian looks at the United States and says, that's the country I want to be or that's the country I want to live in. Yes, they may be poisoned to a degree by anti-American propaganda in the Russian media, but it's deeper than that. I think that they look at the U.S. and they see that the U.S. has quite a lot of problems. So it's not, I think, in the role. <laughs> if the Russians get rid of Putin, they come to us and say, how should we set up our Supreme Court? How should we set up our Constitution? By all means, we should offer whatever wisdom we have. But beyond that, I just don't think it's our role to go and say what form of government Russia should have. I'm wondering how you balance that need for humility with the actual threat that we know mm -hmm. Russia has posed and continues to pose to democracy in the U.S. and other Western countries. Absolutely. I'm going to add one more word to humility to sound even more, to sound like I have even more gravitas. I would say sobriety. So humility when it comes to democracy promotion, just vis-a-vis -vis where the United States is at the moment, we have to earn a bit more when it comes to our internal democracy before we can make very strong statements. The U.S. government can make very strong statements abroad. I think we will. And when we do, then uh, we can change our tone a little bit. But uh, sobriety also. Uh, so here's, to me, a more dry point, even if we would be in a state of complete self-confidence about American democracy at the moment. Let's look back at a number of these revolutions in the last 10 years, 20 years. When's the last one that uh, where a tyrant has been toppled and it's worked out well? Let's go back to Iraq. You have the Iraq war, the tyrant is toppled, and it's been sort of chaos and devastation ever since. Not that it was good before. Uh, you have Egypt, where there were so many hopes invested in Tahrir Square and the sort of moment of democratic transformation. And what did you get? You get the Egyptian military at the end. You have Syria, which was a democratic protest movement and sort of uprising, and you have civil war there. So humility and sobriety. But you're absolutely right. Russia is a threat in a number of areas. But I would detach this conversation from the conversation about Navalny, because Navalny is not the solution for the U.S., at least in terms of what we can practically achieve with our foreign policy. The solution to Russia's meddling in 2016 or 2020, and it's going to go on in the future, is not to funnel money to Navalny and get him to overthrow Putin. Not that <laughs> you were proposing that in your question, but that is a sort of logical inference if we make Navalny the center of this. The solution to the problem of meddling is to impose costs on the Russian government, on Putin's government, and also to build up resilience here at home. In other words, the solution to these threats that Russia poses, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Belarus, Ukraine, or you know, through social media, in the political cultures of ourselves and our allies, the solution to that is better policy, part of which means being tough on Russia and part of which is building up our internal strengths and resilience. But in no way do I see Navalny as a solution to any of those problems in the short or medium term. And if Navalny emerges three years from now as the pro-Western, democratic, non-threatening leader of Russia, you know, that's a wonderful outcome. But I just don't see there being any sort of path from our policies at the moment to that kind of outcome. So I would peg the meddling and the sort of military issues to our own policy choices, but they're policy choices that are framed by how we deal not with Navalny, but with Vladimir Putin. So Michael, what are you going to be watching for as the situation continues to unfold to see whether we might be on the precipice of a change or, or maybe kind of 
heading for more of the status quo or perhaps something in between? I think that um, you could watch three separate storylines unfold and then all of us and sort of as best we can should try analytically to connect these three storylines. So one will be Putin's relationship with President Biden and with the West. And you can imagine here two scenarios that uh, Putin could try to conciliate. He could try to cut a few deals maybe in Ukraine. He could try to uh, loosen some of the tension or, or moderate some of the tension as a way of showing that he's not such a, <laughs> you know, he's not such an authoritarian that uh, maybe he can get some sanctions relief and, and show the younger generation that there are prospects of greater integration with the world economy, with the outside world. Uh, and he could sort of soften up. And that's one possibility. I think the more likely possibility is that Putin is going to try to generate a few confrontations with the West and create a different storyline in Russia, create a different uh, uh, set of problems, and then try to blame the West increasingly for Russia's ills and problems. How successful that will be, I really don't know. There's something a little bit exhausted about that technique, but uh, I think it's something that Putin will try. And also, we want to watch how our own governments respond to this. Germany, France, Britain, Japan, China, United States play a big role in all of this. And we don't really have much of a Russia strategy at the moment. And so, <laughs> how are we going to sort of chart our course and what are we going to emphasize? And that's something we should certainly be watching. Secondly, I think that you want to look for the crystallization of grassroots support. So in a social media age, I think this is why it is important to go back and study Egypt and go back and study the Arab Spring. Social media is very good at mobilizing people. It's very good at conveying information. It's very good at undermining official narratives. All of that has happened at once with the Navalny video and his advocacy in the last couple of weeks and months. But social media and the sort of contemporary political world that we inhabit is not so good at creating ordered, structured, very goal-directed movements. And so that's something I would look for. Does Russia start to develop that? Do you start to see an opposition movement that has not just Navalny as a sort of leader, but uh, a real leadership structure? And Do they offer a viable alternative to what Putin represents? And that, I think, would be a big step forward for the opposition and would be something really, really significant so that Russians could consider, is it worth betting on Navalny? Does he really have something that could be new and better from what we have with Putin? Thirdly, and not the least important factor by any means, what is the nature of loyalty and support for the government? You know, if we would go back and look at New York Times articles and tweets about Belarus, 90% of them are about the opposition. And that's been true in the last two weeks for Russia, but uh, we don't want to forget what makes these regimes tick and really study those ingredients. And uh, also there we can kind of look for changes. Do you see a hardening? Do you see that people are afraid of losing their property and losing their power and their position? So they're really going to fall into line behind Putin. Or on the other hand, do we see dissension? That, you know, this is a weakening of Putin. It's a moment of turmoil. And maybe you can muscle him out of the scene and supplant him. And I think because we Americans are sort of inherently drawn to democracy, we're drawn to opposition movements, we have this long period of tension and, and difficulty with Russia, we're going to sympathize with Navalny. But intellectually, we have to understand the nature of sympathy for Putin. So it's almost a harder job. So if I were a journalist, I would sort of go out of my way to try to bring that story to American readers and make us understand. And then if we can bring these three points together into some kind of synthesis, the international dimension, the protest dimension, and the sort of regime dimension, I think we'll have the key to the puzzle. Well, uh, Michael, you've done a great job helping us understand these three dimensions and the many complexities and facets and history of this developing story in Russia. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jenna and Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. 
All right, that was really interesting. Michael, such thoughtful and well-informed answers. So I really feel like I understand this stuff better now. Candice, the thing that I wanted to mention is this interesting presentation in Russia of this populist strain that we see all over the world, right? You see it in Brazil, in Turkey, in Hungary, in the United States, in Great Britain, all over the world, right? And Putin also manifested some of that same kind of populist motivation, right? You have the end of the Cold War, Soviet Union collapses, Russia is mortified, humiliated on the world stage. And here comes Putin saying, we're going to make Russia great again. And I was just thinking, we were just talking about COVID vaccines. Well, they call their vaccine Sputnik. Mm-hmm. And it, that's not an effort to recapture some of this old glory when, mm-hmm. you know, there were two superpowers and China wasn't one of them, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it's obvious that that was what Putin was doing and very successfully punching out of his weight class in terms of his ability to combat the United States with election insecurities and things like that. And then you have the nod to Russian imperialism by just taking mm-hmm. the Crimea, right? And so all of that is part of Putin's appeal, this kind of populist appeal. But then you have Navalny come, sorry, Navalny, and he makes a similar populist appeal. But what he does is he says, you, the regular, decent, hardworking Russian, are getting screwed by the elites and here is a video of a over billion dollar palace mm-hmm. that Putin is building down around the uh, Black Sea, making this huge resort. Well, who's paying for that, poor Russians? Is this right? Is this what you work so hard for and struggle so hard for is so people can take it? And so when you heard these protests, they weren't saying Putin is an autocrat, Putin is a dictator. They mm-hmm. were saying Putin is a thief. Yeah. And so it's it's just really fascinating to me how this is yet another manifestation of this almost worldwide phenomenon of people feeling like the elites are getting all the benefits, all the advantages, all the privileges, and they're doing it on the backs of poor regular folks. Yeah. I mean, the thing about Putin is that when he shows up, Right. He is this disciplined guy who does judo. He has like this particular personality that he presents. And that is what people wanted. Right. And they still believe in that. I mean, his popularity ratings are pretty high and we can like quibble about whether the polls are real polls. But when people are asked if they would vote for him tomorrow, most people say, yeah. And it's less than the people who say they approve of his job. But anyway, so that's one thing, right, is that he's created this persona over two decades and then it gets outed. He gets outed through <laughs> through this billion dollar palace community. And even I watched that video. Over 100 million people have seen this video. But I think it's also important to think about this character, Navalny himself. He is not new to Russians, but he is now becoming a household name in the U.S. And I remember learning about him through a This American Life episode in 2017. 
I think one thing that's also important to note about Navalny is that he also has evolved in his ideology over the years and that he started out as a nationalist and anti-immigration and a neoliberal. And he has over time switched up the way that he talks about things. And this anti-corruption stance has really struck a chord for a lot of people and a lot of young people who, as we mentioned before, Mm -hmm. aren't the beneficiaries of the economy that people saw when oil was booming. I think that we should be careful (laughs) about how much... I think that what Navalny did to get poisoned almost die, go in a coma, and then come back to Russia. He is absolutely right. People were like, we don't know what to do with you, is one thing. I think that we also need to consider if he's the guy that we want to put our faith in as the new founding father of Russia. So the other thing I think that stood out to me, and I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about Michael just kind of talking about democratic optimism and authoritarian concern and about humility and sobriety. I mean, we just had a riot in our capital. People died. People were there in support of a falsehood. And despite the fact that there were 60 legal challenges brought against this falsehood, and all of them, except for one trivial one, was rejected, It didn't matter. That lie still caused these people to riot in the Capitol. And so because of that, the idea that we have some kind of standing, the United States has some kind of standing to wag our finger at Myanmar that just had a coup or Mm -hmm. at Russia for jailing this person for the most preposterous, illegitimate of reasons is just diminished, right? We just don't have either the moral or the political standing that we did prior to 2016 when Donald Trump assumed the presidency. As you were talking, I was thinking about World War II, and maybe because this is just on the top of my mind, I was thinking about the Black soldiers who came back and were like, wait, we need to fight fascism at home and abroad. And also that the United States did respond to its own policies and like, wait a second, we've been saying that we're fighting these anti-democratic countries, but we are doing anti-democratic things at home and we should Mm -hmm. address these issues. One of the bitter ironies here is that it was in large measure the effort of the Soviet Union to call out American hypocrisy associated with civil rights in the nation, in the United States, that helped to spur the civil rights movement, right? Because Mm -hmm. it was just very difficult to argue against their point, right? Yeah, that's right. Who the hell are you to talk about what's going on in Angola when a Black person in Mississippi can't take the bus or can't vote or whatever? And that's a pretty good argument. And so it made it hard. It just led that much more weight to the effort to move things forward. And I am all for the idea of us taking this moment to reflect on the condition of our democracy and what needs to happen. I think it was E.J. Dionne who said there are democratic antibodies that are out in our circulatory system right now that weren't there before. And maybe that's true. And maybe this will be a moment where we renew our commitment to democracy. But I think for right now, 
All I'm saying is our capital as mm -hmm. arbiters, moral arbiters or democratic arbiters has just been severely damaged. And there are a lot of bad guys all over the world who are taking full advantage of that fact. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Anyway, it's fascinating to see. It's important and it gives us a lot to reflect on in democracy in general and also on our own experience of it. Thanks to Michael for the interview and Jenna. And uh, thanks to uh, Candace for yet another interesting and stimulating conversation. I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Candace Watt-Smith. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.